Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Oh, how are we doing today? Good. good? Man, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Tommy. I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, come out and say hello. Special shout out to those watching online or over at Mayfair or Sherman or the East Side. It's good to be with you. Uh, like Pastor Anthony just said, we're going to be in John 19. John 18. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone or however you get to God's Word, if you want to head and go there now, I'd encourage you, go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in John 19. So go ahead and open up. Um, and as you're opening that up, I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> I want to ask you a question. Growing up, how did you view God? Growing up, how did you view God? Um, I think if we went around the room, uh, not only would we be here for three weeks uh, going through every single one of us giving that answer, I think we could very easily say there's a lot of different ways that we viewed God growing up. Uh, typically when this topic comes up, though, I tend to see three common answers or three common distinctives of how people respond to this. So growing up, people view God, and a lot of times I hear something like this. He was just distant. He was just distant. Uh, maybe you didn't grow up in the church, so the idea of God was just not there. It just didn't happen. It, it was, he was distant. Or maybe you did grow up in the church, but it was so removed from your normal way of living that you're just kind of like, eh, he just kind of put me in motion and just let me go. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's this. Maybe you thought of him as like a drill sergeant, like a drill sergeant. Like he was giving you the list of rules and you had to follow them. And if you didn't follow those rules, woohoo, right? Like you, he was just sitting there, he's a rule-mongering God, he's oppressive, and he's constantly yelling at you with his finger just pointing at you. <laughs> Sound familiar, anyone? Or sometimes I get this third one, he's just disappointed. No matter what you do, it's just never good enough. Uh, he's just sitting around the corner just waiting, going, I knew you were going to mess up. Can you resonate with one of those three? You see, I, I think when we enter into conversations about God, or we come into church, or we interact with Jesus, we come with preconceived ideas of who we think God is. We walk in, we bring this with us. Um, and I think what this can do is actually limit our understanding and not allow God to be who he really is. Uh, today's passage is dealing with this very question. <laughs> in fact, we're going to see three different groups of people who interact with Jesus, and they miss the mark on who he is. They let their preconceived ideas um, lay the forefront instead of letting Jesus be who he is. All right? So with that in mind, we're going to be in John 19. So if you have your Bible, go ahead, like I said, open up. Um, quick context here. Jesus is on trial. So in case you haven't been with us, Jesus is on trial, and we're getting to the verdict portion. And we're at the very end, and there's three main characters. Uh, the first character, we have Jesus, the defendant. So Jesus is actually defending. Uh, he's the defendant. We have the religious leaders as the prosecutors and the jury. <laughs> and we have Pilate, who's the judge. So Jesus, the defendant, the religious leaders as the prosecutors, and Pilate, the judge. And this is really important, so you need to know this. Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. So the judge, Pilate, thinks Jesus has done no wrong, okay? Keep that in your brain. That's going to be really important. So with that in mind, let's jump in. John 19. So verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. All right, pause right off the top. What is flogging? <laughs> right? Anyone heard this word recently? Uh, I can't say I have. Uh, outside of reading this passage, I can't remember the last time that I heard it. At least I don't remember. And so John doesn't really give us more than that. Jesus is flogged, right? Well, there's two things about flogging that help us understand what is going on here. First thing is this. Flogging was not uncommon. 
Uh, this was actually a normal occurrence in that day. Officials in that day would have pretty much flogged anyone simply because they disrupted the public order. Um, even if that person didn't do anything wrong, they'd still be flogged. So the original readers of this text, this makes sense. Jesus disrupted the public order. He got what was coming to him. So that's first. This was a common occurrence. And because this was a common occurrence, this is the second thing. The original readers didn't need John to explain what flogging was. They already knew what flogging was. We don't, right? This is not a common thing for us. So that still begs the question, what is it? What is flogging? Well, flogging would typically involve a person having their hands tied and usually to a pole with up above their hands, above their head, and they would be whipped with a leather whip. And I'm not talking about just every day like a piece of leather. I'm talking about leather that has glass and rocks and anything sharp in the end of that whip that when it hits the skin, it rips and eviscerates skin. So when Jesus said, when, when John says Jesus was flogged, this is not some ho-hum activity. <laughs> this is three words, Jesus was flogged, that carries a lot of weight. This would be a near-death experience. This would be so painful that actually later on, not today, but in future things, Jesus was in so much physical pain that he collapses under the weight of it. All right, so Jesus being flogged, this is not... This is not a small thing. This is a big deal. In one verse, a lot has already happened. But remember, Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. So this seems like a bit much, right? Well, this isn't even where the humiliation ends. Check this out, verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Okay, as if flogging wasn't enough, now Jesus is about to be humiliated publicly by putting, being put through a sham of a coronation. All right, think about this. What does a coronation look like in the movies? I have a seven, a four, and a two-year-old, so Frozen is on way more than it should be in our house. All right, Elsa's coronation is a grand sight, right? I know it's not, she's not a king, but she's a queen. And what happens? The whole town shows up, right? It's a big party. They sing a song about how they're opening up the gates, right? It's a big deal. A coronation is a monstrous thing. Usually it is fit for the royal person. So if it's a big, big deal, there's going to be a party. There's going to be treasures and gifts and all of these things. Typically, a coronation is a spectacle of magnificent proportion that is fit for the king or queen. This coronation is a sham. It's a spectacle of great humiliation. Jesus is given two articles of clothing. He's given a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Uh, the purple robe here, the purple part of it would have denoted some form of royalty. So what are they saying? We're going to put purple on you. Why? Because yeah, you're, we're going to say that you are royal, right? It's like they need the, they need the signs around it. Uh, the second thing is the crown of thorns. Um, I grew up in church. I don't know about you. So when I hear someone say Jesus wore a crown of thorns, it doesn't really hit me. In fact, if you put a picture up and I saw a dude with, with a crown of thorns on it, I would go like, oh, that must be Jesus, right? It doesn't hit me the way it should. Think about it for a second. Can you imagine a king today wearing a crown of thorns? Of course not. That would be incredibly painful. It'd be degrading. And that's the point. <laughs> By placing a crown of thorns on Jesus' head, the soldiers are saying this. We don't think Jesus is who he says he is. So not only is his back been eviscerated, the skin off his back, but they're going to shove this crown of thorns on his head. This is a painful thing. 
The, the, the soldiers here don't think Jesus is a true king, and their actions show it. This is a sham, right? This leads me to my first point. Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the real king. You see, the soldiers have a preconceived idea that Jesus is not a real king. Uh, they don't see the truth. Uh, they mock him. Do you think if they actually believed Jesus was king, this is how they'd treat him? No, they would put frozen to shame, right? They would. But instead, what do they do? They beat him. They mock him. They, 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 they put him on a public, public display. The sham, this sham of a coronation isn't just mocking Jesus. It's degrading. Jesus would be in serious, near-death pain. And I think John is trying to tell us something here, and we need to catch it. He's trying to say this. There is a difference between the truth of who Jesus really is and what the people of this story believe. There is a difference between who Jesus really is and who the people of the story think he is. Uh, the truth, Jesus is king. We, we just said that, right? The belief of the people, Jesus is just a man. That's what they believed. In fact, we see this in the text. Check out verse four. Uh, verse four, Pilate went out again and said to them, he's talking to the people, see, I am bringing, out to, bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold, the man. All right, what's Pilate saying? What's going on? Well, uh, Pilate is trying to say, isn't this enough? Uh, haven't we humiliated him enough? Uh, Jesus is innocent. Does this not suffice? Look, we've beaten him, bloody, we put him in a sham of a coronation. What more do you want to do? He's just a man. Pilate has said, Jesus is innocent. Take him yourself. I found no guilt in him. We've done enough. And we probably should agree with Pilate. Jesus is innocent. Um, and in this moment, the people should say something like, okay, Pilate, I hear you. You're right. He's done enough. Sure, he disrupted public order, but we can go back to our everyday lives. He suffered enough. But that's not what happens. Um, they want it all. And they want it now. Any Queen fans in the room? Um, verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So what is it the people want? They want Jesus dead. And when do they want it? They want it now. Uh, the people here do not believe Jesus is who he says he is. They look at Jesus and say, I don't care what you've done. I don't want any part in you. Uh, the religious leaders are saying, I know what God is supposed to look like, and Jesus, you ain't it. Uh, you're just a man. You've disrupted the peace and my way of life so much, I want you gone forever. Crucify him. If you think about this, this is crazy, right? What has Jesus done? Think of everything Jesus has done up to this point in John. Now, in case you haven't been here, let me give you a quick snapshot into some of the things Jesus has done. Uh, Jesus united people that were never supposed to be united. The, the 12 disciples that, that right with him were a group of guys that would probably be more like mortal enemies, let alone friends, let alone being on mission together. He united this group that should never have been united. Uh, he healed people that were cast-offs. He cared for the lost and the broken, and he restored them. 
He even brought a dude back from the dead, right? So you would think you'd look at this and go, oh, okay, the religious leaders, they should be okay with this. Nope, they want him dead. They don't see the truth. What is the truth? And it brings us to our second point. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. See, we hear all that Jesus did and ask, why would these leaders want him dead? Right? This seems like a big jump. Uh, Jesus seems to be like a good guy. Okay, maybe you don't think he's God, but there's a big difference between I don't like you and kill him. Right? There's, there's a huge, huge divide there. And, and, and let me ask you this. How many of us like it when we have things taken from us? And it, it's amazing. No hands go up in the room when I ask that question. Um, I have a seven, four, and a two-year-old. You think I, I, I can watch this on a daily basis happen? They take things from each other. Um, it, it, it's almost a daily occurrence in our house. And they, you see things we really don't like when things are taken away from us when we like the thing that was taken. Right? Uh, how many of us, let me ask it another way, when we hear the truth that Jesus says, say, sure, Jesus, have your way. I give you control. And how many of us do it joyfully? I'll be, I'll be, I struggle with this. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked by a friend, uh, Tommy, how did you view God growing up? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> you ever have somebody ask you a question and your first natural response is just, Psh, why are you asking that? I'm not talking about like those questions. You just respond to it. Uh, it caught me off guard when my friend asked me. I was like, Psh, bro, I have a seminary degree. I have a master's in the Bible. I'm in full-time ministry. I know who God is. Why are you asking me this question? Right? I was dismissing it. But as my friend and I started to talk, I quickly realized, okay, maybe there's something to this question. I didn't realize this at the time, but I had in my head an image of God that was a disciplinarian drill sergeant God. A little fact about me, I have a fear of failure. (laughs) And that fear was translating over to how I view God. I was so focused on my performance and making sure I was good enough And that was impacting my relationship with Jesus. I was scared and living in fear. So instead of serving Jesus because he loved me and I wanted to put his love on display, I was serving as a checklist to make sure I didn't go to hell. I was missing the point. I had the wrong image of God in my head. I knew in my head all the right facts. I could tell you all the right theological terms. In fact, I knew them in the Greek and the Hebrew. But the way I was living life, I wasn't living life in light of how Jesus and who he truly was. So this left me at a crossroads. Do I, like the religious leaders here, say, I'm not going to really see Jesus for who he is and let him change me? Or do I let Jesus be God and he defines who he is? The religious leaders here, they've been confronted with the real Jesus. They talk with him, interact with him. He was disrupting their lives, and they didn't like it. (laughs) Their way of life and their power was being ripped from them by Jesus. People were leaving the flock of the religious leaders and following Jesus instead. Uh, The leaders did not like what was being taken away from them. They were losing control. The leaders had an image in their mind of what they thought God looked like, and they thought that God looked like them. He acted like them and fully agreed with them. And Jesus, there was no way he could be God. So to them, Jesus was just a man. For me, I didn't realize this is where I was too. I had an idea in my head of who I thought God was, and I was missing the mark. Uh, The conversation with my friend led me to dive into Scripture and really wrestle with who is Jesus. The result was crazy. I didn't see a disciplinarian drill sergeant God. I saw a gracious, 
loving God that was compassionate. He was full of mercy, and he hates sin and its effect on us, and he steps into my reality, into our reality, and he made a way to bring us out of that muck. My reality changed. Why? Because I interacted with the real living God, and it helped me see the world through his eyes. For the religious leaders of this story, they don't let Jesus change them. Uh, They interacted with the real living God. They did. They talked with him. Uh, And instead of accepting him, they reject him. They want Jesus dead. Why? Because Jesus did not fit the mold of what they wanted. All right, back to the story. Uh, This seems to leave Pilate in a pretty weird situation, right? Uh, For one second, let's jump into Pilate's shoes. We have what's going on. Pilate, the judge, remember, he thinks Jesus is innocent, and we know that that's true, but the crowd wants Jesus dead. Uh, Pilate is stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? The judge has heard from the jury. They have given their verdict. They want him dead. Pilate's in a no-win situation, And, and to give credit to Pilate, he recognizes this, and he's not really sure with what to do. We see this. Check this out. Verse 8. Follow along. Um, When Pilate heard this statement, this statement is that Jesus called himself the Son of God, Pilate was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. All right, what's going on? A few quick things. One, Pilate's having a pseudo-panic attack, right? Uh, Verse 8 shows us this. He's, He's afraid. What is he afraid of? Remember earlier when they said that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and that's why they wanted to kill him? Um, Quick note about Pilate. Pilate was a Roman. And in case you don't know anything about Roman religion, maybe you've heard the term Roman mythology. Uh, Roman mythology is basically what we call a pantheistic religion, or they believe in multiple gods. They didn't just believe in multiple gods. They believed that gods walked among them. And they even had statues that would be, that would be up saying, we have a statue to the gods that we don't even know about yet. So when the pantheistic Roman Pilate hears that Jesus is the, could, is the son of God, what do you think is going through Pilate's head? It's probably something like this. Uh Uh-oh. I can't kill a God. I've heard those stories. You know what happens to the dude who is responsible to killing a God? It ain't pretty, and I want none of that. Pilate wants out. We see that in the passage. He sought every way to release Jesus. He's stuck. Pilate is stuck between the court of public opinion and the truth of who Jesus is. We see this in the next few verses. He's stuck between these things. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these things, these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seats at a place called the Stone Pavement in the Aramaic Gabbatha. Look, I think it's easy for us to look into the story and say, Pilate, bro, dude, just do the right thing. Like, just release Jesus. It's easy. He's innocent. But let me ask you this. Do you really think this decision is that easy? What would you do in Pilate's situation? Pilate wants to do the right thing. He wants to let Jesus go. The court of public opinion is telling him, "Uh uh-uh, don't do that. Kill him. Pilate is stuck. And I think Pilate is wrestling with one simple question. 
Who is my authority? Who is my authority? You see, in this passage, we see Pilate actually has three distinct authority figures, and he's wrestling with which one is the one I should follow. He's got Caesar, the religious leaders bring up Caesar, which would be like going to the worker and say, I'm going to talk to your boss, right? That's Caesar. Caesar was Pilate's boss. He was his king. You have the court of religious people. You have this, this public opinion. He's trying to figure out, should I follow them? And Pilate is trying to figure out, is Jesus God? So Pilate has three distinct authorities, and he's trying to figure out who is my authority. I feel for Pilate. I would not want to be in his shoes at all. This is hard. Uh, Pilate could say yes to Jesus. My guess wouldn't go too well in terms of his public approval rating, right? Caesar and his people would not be happy with the release of Jesus, or Pilate could give in to the people, and then Pilate is the guy who's responsible for killing a god. This is a no-win situation, right? Let me ask you this. How often do we, as human beings, wrestle with giving into the court of public opinion and not allow Jesus to be our ultimate authority? How often do we, as human beings, wrestle with giving into the court of public opinion and not allow Jesus to be our ultimate authority? Let me ask it a different way. How often do we, as Christ followers, let the sway of what the world says speak louder than who Jesus is. You see, I think it's easy for us to sit here on our high horse and look at Pilate and say, bro, just do the right thing. Just do it. But when we're in these types of situations, it's not so easy. Think about it. What, what does the court of public opinion say about how I should spend my money? What does the court of public opinion say about the purpose of life? Or what does it say about relationships and living together? Let's flip it. What does God say about how I spend my money? The world says, live it up. Spend it on yourself. It's all about you. Just get as much as you can. It's all about stuff. If you only live once, enjoy it. What does God say? <laughs> live with simplicity. Live graciously. Be a joyful giver. Use your finances, however much or little, to bring honor to God. Uh, what does God say about the purpose of life? The world says, you only live once. Live it up. You are the author of truth. You say what is right. You know what's best. What does God say? Follow me. Submit. <laughs> Repent. Repentance means to be going in a direction and stop and go the other way. Instead of going our own way, go the way of God. He, what does he say about the purpose of life? Go and make disciples. Be conformed to my image. Or another way of saying that, become more like me. Love God and love people. What does God say about living together before marriage? The world says, test the waters. Do what you want. It's not a big deal. What does God say? Avoid temptation. Abstain. Live such good lives among the pagans that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify God. Listen, I think as we wrestle through what we should do, um, it doesn't always look as simple as like, what does the world say? What does God say? I think it looks more like this. Maybe it's just me, but this is what it looks like in my head. God, I know what you say and what the right thing is to do, but financially, this makes more sense. Or, God, I trust you, but what you're calling me to do, what you're asking me to do, it's just too hard. I don't want to do it. Listen, I think you could hear me and say this. Tommy, this sounds like legalism. It sounds like you're saying, just live the right way. And I don't think this is. Um, I actually think, rather, I think it's wrestling with the same question Pilate is wrestling with. Who is my ultimate authority? See, at the end of the day, Jesus is king. <laughs> Jesus is God. And he wants his best for us. He loves us so much that he wants us to experience that love. 
Look, when I love something, it changes my decisions and how I perceive the world. I love my wife. She loves me. I'm pretty sure. No, I'm just kidding. We talked about this last night. She does. Um, that love we have for one another, it affects each of us. My love for my wife, her name is Sarah, changes how I perceive the world and the decisions I make. I start to see the things she enjoys, and I want to learn about them so I can be, so better understand her. Um, she loves HGTV. I've grown to learn a lot about what it means to take care of a home. Um, I grew up in a farm town. I could literally step out on my back porch and see the Milky Way. That's a little different than Milwaukee. My wife loves the city. You know what we did? We moved to a city, and it changed me. And I love the city. <laughs> and I would learn so much because of that experience. I love dogs. My wife loves cats. You know what we did? We got two cats. Why? Because I love my wife more than I love dogs. Am I living in a legalistic marriage? No. <laughs> These decisions we've made come out of a love for each other. She's made some of the same sacrifices and her life has been impacted. She worked so I could go to school. I love my wife, and that love that I have for her and for me back changes how I view my life, and it affects the decisions I make. The same is true with Christ. He loves me. <laughs> His love affects me and affects how, I, how we live life and the decisions we make. Listen, I'm not God. You're not God. Jesus is. He knows what's best, and he wants his best for us, which is why, as a Christ follower, I should be striving to make him the authority in my life. He loves me, and I love him. Therefore, the decisions I make should be up to him. So that begs this question. How do I put the world aside and grow in my trust and understanding of God's authority? The trust of Jesus. Well, I think it starts with this. It's starting with surrender. Um, we just sang about this, but it's admitting who Jesus is. It's saying he is king. He is God. He is authority. And I want him to be my my authority in life. We do this, how? By listening to his voice. Um, we find his voice in scripture, what he says. This is why we read the Bible. This is why we preach out of the Bible. This is why we pray. It's how we communicate with God. We enter into community with other believers. Why? Because together we're chasing after Jesus. Listen, if you find yourself here caught in a situation of trying to figure out how do I give Jesus authority and you're not sure how, talk to someone about it. Um, talk to your campus pastor. If you are trying to navigate through the court of public opinion and what Jesus says and what you should do, talk to somebody that came with you. Talk to another Christ follower. Talk to your small group leader. Man, because at the end of the day, I think we are all wrestling with who is the authority in our lives. The religious leaders in this story, they miss it. They miss the mark. And they're actually quick to tell us who their authority is. Check this out, verse 14. Now it was the day of, of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, uh, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, catch this, we have no king but Caesar. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Listen, I think it's easy for us to look here and say, oh, they messed up. But something hit me this week when I was really wrestling this. Did you catch the end of verse 15? What did it say? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Listen, these aren't the pagans saying that. 
This isn't the everyday person saying this. This is the religious leaders. This is the pastor of the pastors. To be a religious leader, do you know what you had to do? You had to memorize word for word the first five books of the Bible. Like they know everything about God verbatim. And what do they say? I have no king but Caesar. Man, let this be a warning to us as Christ followers. Uh, like, like, let me say this. At, at least they're honest, <laughs> right? At least they're willing to tell the truth. But I think this, we sometimes as Christ followers can try to hide this. Why? Because we like control. We like to be the one in control. Uh, I'm a human being. I messed up. So I want to be careful here to, to not sit here and vilify this group of people. But there is one final point, and I think it's crucial, and it's not going to surprise us. <laughs> Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority. I think throughout this whole story, um, we could miss who is really in control. We could think it's Pilate, right? He's the one who's making the decision. Or maybe you're a little more astute than that. Maybe you're like, no, it's the religious leaders who are coercing Pilate to get what he wants. I don't think so. I think it's this. I actually think it's Jesus who's in control. Why do I believe this? All right, track with me for a second. Think back throughout the book of John. We see over and over and over Jesus do miraculous things. Um, Jesus simply speaks words and creative outside of our reality concepts come to life. Uh, Jesus simply says the word rise. And you know what happens? A dude walks out of the grave. You don't think while Jesus was being flogged and whipped and put through a mock coronation, he could have simply said enough and all that would have been gone? You don't think, it blew me away this week to think that Jesus created the soldiers that were humiliating him and degrading him, and in humility, he let them do it. Uh, Pilate, he flaunts his misguided authority over Jesus, and Jesus responds, pointing to the fact that the authority that Pilate has is given to him by God. Uh, the religious people who scream for Jesus' death, Jesus could have looked at them and said, you peasants, don't you know who I am? But notice, he doesn't do that. In fact, we're going to see very soon that Jesus willingly sacrifices himself for these very people who want him dead. In each of these three scenarios, we see a beautiful, humble, and gracious God. Uh, remember earlier when I asked you, how did you view God growing up? The dictator, drill sergeant, and distant God, that's not the same Jesus as the one in this passage. The real Jesus, the one in this passage, he's patient. He's humble. He's gracious. He's beautiful. I need the reality of this Jesus to change me. He is the true king. He is the authority. He is God. All right, as we wrap up, I want to leave you with one final question. Who is the authority in your life? Who is the authority in your life? Maybe you're trying to answer this. Um, one way to do this, if we were to look at your calendar, what does it look like? What would it say is the authority in life? If we were to look at your finances, if we were to pull out that record, what does that say? Maybe the relationships and the way you spend your time and who you spend them with, what would they say? Would they say, I have no king but Caesar or I have no king but myself? Or would they say, I have no king but Jesus? 
Listen, this is a heavy topic. I, I know that. And to be fair, the death of Jesus is not a light topic. It is heavy. So as we wrestle through this question, man, wrestle through the heaviness. It's a good thing to wrestle with this question. Um, in life, we, like Pilate, can think, I'm ultimately the one in control. But we're not. <laughs> Jesus is. He is God, and he loves us. Uh, Jesus shows his authority, in, and he shows authority over life and death by going willingly to the cross. He dies a death he doesn't deserve. When he could have stopped it at any point, yet he willingly gives up his life. And three days later, he rises up from the grave victorious over death. Man, any person that has the power over life or death, they have the final word. Not me, not you, not Pilate, not Caesar, not even the religious people. Jesus is the final word. He's king. He's God. And catch me, here's what's beautiful. This Jesus, this one, he invites each and every one of us into the love that he has for us. He wants us to experience that. He wants us to live the best way possible, not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but because he loves us, he wants that to us, affect us and change how we do life. He wants to be the authority. He wants what's best for you. <laughs> Listen, when we submit to God's authority, it's gonna challenge you. It's going to force you to wrestle with, how do you view God? It's going to force you to wrestle with, am I viewing him correctly? And if you let Jesus be who he says he is, I promise you this, it will change you. I'm changed. <laughs> I'm continuing to grow and understand him. This will make you, as you give him authority, it will make you more like him. Uh, John call, says it this way, it will conform you to his image. Man, if you're Christ following him, let's give him authority. He's worth it. <laughs> so I ask you again, who is the authority in your life? Let's pray. Um, God, you are a good God. Um, Jesus, you came and lived the perfect life. You, you, you lived an innocent life. Pilate was right. You were innocent. You did nothing wrong. And yet you willingly gave yourself to sacrifice for us. Jesus, thank you for being a God that doesn't just sit back, but you actually want to be in our lives. You want to, ha you have our best, uh, be our best in your mind. God, you want what's best for us. You want your best for us. Jesus, I thank you that in this passage we see who you really are. Jesus, help us, help me to see you more clearly every day. Jesus, thank you so much that you give us the opportunity to make you the authority of our lives. We love you, and we praise you, and I thank you that you <laughs> rose from the dead. And that changes everything. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.